We're continuing our sermon series through Advent on the Gospel of Matthew and the narratives surrounding the birth of Jesus. But we're skipping over the story about the wise men arriving and visiting the child because we didn't want to have to deal with today's incredibly hard passage on Christmas Eve. But that means we're dealing with it today. And I almost didn't. It's been a really hard week. It's been a really hard week for our church family and for our community. And part of me really wants to avoid this. To be sensitive to the grief of our family and our community. The other part of me recognizes that we can't ignore the pain of the world that we live in. God doesn't hide the hard things in the Bible. In fact, ignoring the hard things in the Bible tells those who are suffering the hardest that we're afraid to talk about what you're going through. But God has words of hope no matter what we're going through. And so with a heavy heart and open ears, we're turning today to Matthew chapter 2. And we're starting in verse 13, and we're going through verse 18, and we pick up after Jesus has been born. He's likely between 6 and 18 months old in this passage. The wise men have visited, they have brought their gifts, and they have been warned by an angel to not return to the evil King Herod and to tell him about the whereabouts of Jesus. Let's turn to the Word of God this morning. Matthew chapter 2, beginning in verse 13, going through verse 18. Now when they, that is the wise men, had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt, I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, a voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel, weeping for her children, she refused to be comforted because they are no more. Let us pray. Oh Lord, we give thanks for your word. We thank you that you are a God who speaks the truth to us and you do so in love. You do so compassionately. You tell us what we need to know. You do not hide hard truths from us, but you show us them, but you also show us your goodness throughout. God, we pray that you would help us to hear your word today 
Help me, O Lord, to faithfully and clearly and compassionately proclaim Your Word today and to explain it and point to the hope that we have in Jesus. And Lord, give us ears to hear. Soften our hearts and make them tender to hear the hope that You give us today. We pray, O Lord, that You might apply Your Word by Your Spirit and give us Your grace to hear what You have to say to us this morning and the hope You give us even in the darkest of times. In Jesus' name, Amen. Our passage this morning breaks down very neatly into two parts, each of which contains an Old Testament prophecy. Three verses each, one Old Testament prophecy at the end of each of them. And in these two parts, we are going to see this inescapable tension of being a Christian, that we serve a sovereign God who rules over a fallen creation. And we're going to look in our passage and look forward through our passage to how Jesus provides our resolution for that tension. So the first part of our passage deals with how God sovereignly saves Jesus from Herod's wrath. The wise men had been there. They had visited Jesus and Mary and Joseph in Bethlehem, and they brought their expensive gifts, and they worshipped the child. And the wise men seemed to have stayed for at least one night because In a dream, they were warned, don't go back to Herod. Don't tell him you found the baby. Don't tell him what he looks like. Don't tell him what the family is like. Get away and sneak back to where you came from. We see the Lord intervened in order to protect Jesus from Herod's attempts to destroy this promised king of the Jews. God wasn't done intervening. He intervened again sending an angel to Joseph in a dream. And Joseph was told this, Rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. Just like last Sunday, we see Joseph respond to the Word of God in decisive faith. In almost the exact same words, he obeys the commands of the angel. He rose, he took the child and the mother, and they departed to Egypt, and he remained there until the death of Herod. The Lord knew that Herod would respond with great malice, and he protected his promised Messiah from danger. This is what was pictured in our New Testament reading from Revelation 12, that in that vision, the pregnant woman with the 12 stars on her head represents God's people. And their pregnancy represents the longing for that promised Messiah who would come from God's people. And the helpless child that was born seemed like really easy prey for this ferocious red dragon waiting there as the woman is giving birth. And yet, we're not even told what happened. Just the baby was born and whoop! He was caught up to the throne of God and protected that the child who would rule the nations was saved from the evil dragon. And you're like, okay. Well, that seems like all there is to say about this part of the story, Matthew. An angel warns Joseph. Joseph obediently takes his family to Egypt. Jesus survives. The end. But Matthew adds something strange in verse 15. He says this, This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt, I called my son. Doesn't really sound like a prophecy to me. 
It just sounds like something that happened. That's all. God called his people, Israel, out of slavery in Egypt. And he told Pharaoh, you got to let those people go because they're my son. And so you're like, that doesn't really sound like a prophecy. So why in the world is Matthew inserting this random verse from Hosea chapter 11 into the story of Jesus' birth? Well, because Jesus came not only to be the king of Israel, but to be the true Israel itself. He came to be what God's people never could be. The rest of the context in Hosea 11 says this, When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. Israel was called out of Egypt to live as God's son, but they failed. They sinfully turned away from God over and over again, but Jesus would be different. He came to perfectly obey his heavenly father, to be the obedient son Israel was supposed to be. And so Jesus was so identifying himself with God's people that he's like, I got to spend some time in Egypt too. That's a big part of God's people's story, that I will live as an exile in Egypt, just like Israel did. I will live on the run as a refugee in a foreign land, just like God's people did. I'm not going to get it any easier than them. And so he would obediently follow the Lord even when surrounded by the temptations of Egypt. He would live like Israel, but he would do so perfectly. Isn't that one of the wonders of Christmas? That God so loves us and condescends to us and identifies with us in Jesus. That Jesus took on flesh and lived as a human Not just as a strong adult human, but a helpless baby, a young child. Jesus experienced all of the temptations of childhood, adolescence, and adulthood. He lived all of those years and he did so perfectly. God preserved this one child in Bethlehem because he was unlike all the other children. He was the one who would perfectly fulfill God's law and save God's people from their sins and secure them from their evil enemies. The mention of evil brings us now to the second part of the passage in verses 16 through 18. See, the first part focused on how Jesus was saved by going on the run in Egypt, but the second part deals with the rest of the young boys in Bethlehem who were not saved. Matthew writes, Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, he became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Herod's actions are truly evil. He was only after one child. But he wanted to be sure that he killed that one child. So he sent people to kill any child that could have possibly been the promised king. We don't know how many died. Scholars estimate a dozen or two, possibly. If the number's anything above one, above zero, really, 
is awful. One ancient historian writing about Herod said this, that he was a man who was cruel to all alike, who easily gave into anger. The man's character had nothing human to recommend it. Herod was so evil that someone who was close in time to Herod said, he isn't even human. He's so evil. He has none of the good qualities that humans have. And that's fair. Because evil deeds don't get much worse than what Herod did. He used his authority as a ruler of that region to systematically murder babies and toddlers. This wasn't some accident. This was not the result of negligence or some unwise policy that had an unattended effect. This was evil. It is an example of the worst of humanity. The loss of children is a terrible tragedy, and violence against children is one of the worst kinds of evil in our world. This week marked the 10-year anniversary of Sandy Hook Elementary School in Connecticut. Every single one of those things is a horrific act of evil, but that one hit different. It was an elementary school. It was six- and seven-year-olds. I hate even talking about it, and I'm sorry to make you think about it. But we live in a world with this kind of evil. It is this kind of world that Jesus was born into, and it's, it's this kind of world that He came to save. And Matthew is here telling us this is the world. But here is the hope. Here is the hope for those devastated by the evil and suffering that we face. And the hope He provides, again, is just some random verse from Old Testament prophecy. And we're like, that's not super helpful. He quotes Jeremiah 31.15, and it mentions the town of Rama and the person Rachel. Rachel was one of the wives of Jacob, or Israel. She was mother to some of the twelve tribes, and she was buried near Rama. And many years after that, the town of Rama was a kind of staging area for the exiles who were sent to Babylon. They would gather them up from Judah, have a holding spot in Rama, and then march them to Babylon. And so the idea of this verse in Jeremiah 31 is that this deceased matriarch, Rachel, is weeping over her descendants who have been conquered and sent now into exile. That's, like, interesting, I guess. But why is Matthew putting that here? Why is he connecting it to this atrocity? Why, why pull this one verse out of Jeremiah 31? What is so special about it? Well, out of that entire chapter in Jeremiah, it is the only negative verse. Jeremiah 31 is, like, an awesome chapter. Every other part of that chapter soars with God's promises to restore his people, to bring them home from exile, to wipe away their tears, to make a new covenant with them, to give them rest, to give them peace. And so Jeremiah 31 is this amazingly hopeful chapter in a bigger book filled with sorrow and lamentation and grief. Do you see how that fits with what happens 
in Bethlehem. We live in a world like the book of Jeremiah. A world filled with sorrow and lamentation, sin and death and suffering. But with Jesus' birth, Matthew is saying that good stuff of chapter 31 has come. The fulfillment of all God's promises are here. And this event in Bethlehem with the other children is like that one verse, that one terrible mark of sadness in a much bigger, better story. He's saying, yes, Herod's killing of these other children is senseless. It is terrifying. It is horrifying. He's not denying the devastation, but he's saying as horrible as the tragedy is, something far greater had come that would overshadow it. That in Jesus, God brought the good that would not just outweigh, but would overcome this evil. Jesus was the key, which is why he was protected. That if any other child had been the one to survive other than Jesus, these blessings that God had promised would not have come to pass. That Jesus is more important than we are. It's really hard for us to hear. And I don't think the grieving parents in Bethlehem would have wanted to hear those words in the immediate aftermath of their loss. Sure, God keeping His promised Messiah safe. We get that. But why couldn't He have kept the other children safe? Why would He allow such terrible suffering and evil when He can stop it? How can He claim to be both sovereign and good when the world over which He reigns is filled with evil like that? That's perhaps the biggest and hardest question in the world. And it can seem really easy to talk about in a hypothetical, safe setting. But when our hearts are broken, and when tears are streaming down our face, and all we can do is blurt out why to God in anguished prayer, then we just got to know why are these why are things this way god why do you allow such evil why have i suffered why why are these things happening and those are hard and heavy questions but rather than ignore them rather than sidestep them god is saying face them head on bring them to the lord in prayer Approach His Word seeking answers. And yet even when we do that, as hard as we search, as hard as we look, we struggle to find a satisfactory answer to the question, why? And instead of finding a clear answer, what we are left with is almost a process of elimination of what the answer is not. Tim Keller writes this. He says, we don't know what the reason God allows suffering is. But we do know what the reason God allows suffering isn't. It isn't because He doesn't love or care for us. He proved that through Jesus' suffering and death on the cross. It's not because He doesn't love us. 
the child who was saved from Herod's suffering, from Herod's awful evil. He was saved in order to suffer another way. See, it wasn't that Jesus was kept safe from all suffering. Jesus was kept for the right kind of suffering, the kind of suffering that could actually help us and save us and conquer evil and death. But if that is what Jesus came to do, we look around and we're like, where is that saving? Why does it feel like evil is so strong and suffering so severe? It's because Jesus came to conquer evil at its source. He came to conquer evil at its source. And we have to ask, where is that? Where does evil in our world come from? As Herod shows us, it comes from people. Yes, some like Herod are far more evil than others, but all of us have evil desires, sinful desires springing from our heart. And for Jesus to come and eradicate evil in our world, he would have to eradicate our hearts too. But instead of coming and conquering in holy wrath, he conquers us in loving grace. He comes with good news now, saying that he endured evil and suffering on the cross so that sinners like us could be forgiven of our sins and renewed to live with godly instead of evil desires. This is how Jesus was sent to save by his Father. This is how Jesus came to conquer the evil of the world. He is working now in us at the source to make us into his people. This is what God has promised to do. So often we tend to focus on what God has not promised us. Things we wish God had promised us. We wish God had promised us to tell us why He allows these things to happen. We wish He promised us a life without suffering. We wish He promised us a world right now free from evil. We wish He would promise us that we wouldn't have to face tragedy. But God didn't make those promises. The lack of those promises does not make God evil. It doesn't mean He's not good. It means He confuses us. He frustrates us, especially when we suffer and we see evil and suffering around us. But what we should hear is that God does keep the promises He makes. He promised to send a Savior, and it didn't matter what evil was going against that Savior, that Savior was coming. He promised to conquer sin and death, and He has done that. He promised to bless us with His presence, and He has done that. And instead of giving us the answer to why things are the way they are, God gives us something else. Himself. He promises to be with us. And Emmanuel. Here are the words of Psalm 23. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. I don't know what kinds of suffering and evil we will face. But know that God will be with us through them all. He's promised that. He has promised He will be with us. And I know that the evil and suffering that grieves us all is not going to last forever, because He has promised that too. That Jesus will come again and make all things new. He has not done it yet. But he's promised it. And he will. 
And so this Advent season, we not only look back at how Jesus came to save us, but we look forward to his promised return, a day when he will come and eradicate all the evil and suffering forever. A day when all of our tears will be turned to joy. No matter the evil and the suffering that we face in this life, God's promises will surely come to pass. Do not doubt them. God is a God who keeps his word. And so we pray those promises. Come soon, Lord Jesus. Let us pray. Lord, we come to you and we, we know there is so much suffering. We know that evil is out there and it's also in here in our hearts. And Lord, we pray that you would help us to trust in you and your word. That you would comfort us with a sense of your presence to know that you, O oh God, are always with us. And Jesus, we do want you to come back soon. We want you to come back soon to make things new to take away sin, to take away suffering and death and grief and evil, that all things might be good. You have said it will happen. And so please, Lord, come again. We wait. We wait as the people long ago waited. We are feeling the pains of this birth. And so, Lord, comfort us with the knowledge that it is surely coming. Give us that hope and strengthen us in Jesus' name. Amen.